Again, my title for us this morning is The Hope of Glory. And you heard repetitively through this text that we just read together these words, hope and glory, hope and glory. And I want to tell you by way of introduction this truth. We hope for a lot of things, don't we? We hope for a lot of things. And sometimes the things for which we hope are incredibly mundane. I hope I get to work on time. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope when I put my debit card in, oh, none of us have that problem. That's a different hope. Okay. I hope my kids grow up to be like this or that. I hope my marriage is a happy one. I hope I don't get this or that disease. We have a lot of hopes. And some of them are incredibly practical. Some of them are very pragmatic. And none of us would blame the other for saying, well, that's a ridiculous hope that you have. But what I want you to come to the realization of this morning, say amen if you're listening, is that Christian hope is not like that hope. Christian hope and that hope are not the same. They're not synonymous. They're, in fact, juxtaposed. They're like east and west. Because while you and I say things like, I hope this or that will or will not be the case, we are suggesting, by the mere fact of saying such words, that we have absolutely no control over this situation, whatever. And neither does anybody else. It's sort of like, I hope it doesn't rain, but who's controlling the weather, right? But when you and I talk about Christian hope, brother, we're talking about something different. We're talking about something different. When we talk about Christian hope, we're talking about a confident expectation in the future. In fact, if you want to write that down, this is our working definition of Christian hope. A confident expectation in the future. In other words, when Christians talk about hope, they're not talking about something that could possibly be, something that might be, something that if this or that happens, a conditional if or that, then, then it will happen. No, no. We are confident of this expectation in the future. Let me read you a text from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's going to come up here on the screen. You can read it if you like with your eyes. It says, we do not lose heart. I want to pause there just for a minute and say, if we were to just put this into our vernacular, we would probably put it into some sort of phrase like this, we don't lose hope. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, say amen. Yeah. Do your ankles pop like mine in the morning? Oh, you're right, click, 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 and all that jazz. Okay, though our outer self is wasting away, we got blood pressure and headaches and cancer and achy joints. And Church, we're not going to make it. We aren't going to make it. We will die. That is an absolute certainty. And as we see each other wasting away, although that is the case as Christians, Paul says, Although that's the case, our inner self is being renewed day by day because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, I love this, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Did that typo happen there too? <laughs> that's what we call a strong adversative. So that's, it's not like things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It's but. So, sorry about that. That seems very inappropriate. But in any case, you see what's being said by Paul here. Don't lose hope. Listen, we're wasting away, but God is doing something inside of us. Day by day, moment by moment, we look at the things that are passing away, but we put no hope or trust in those things. We look instead to the things that are not. Have I lost all of you for the remainder of this morning? No, no but a little. Yeah. Yeah. 
Church, let me share with you three points this morning that I think are going to help sure up our hope in the gospel and in the plan and providence of God from Romans chapter 8. The first point that I would like to share with you this morning is this. First, Christian hope faces the future. Christian hope faces the future. When we read Romans chapter 8, there are a couple of things that are worth noting. The first of which is this, Christian hope faces the future. Now, jump down a few verses, if you would, please, and look at verse 24. In this hope, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What I mean by our hope faces the future is this. By faith, we, as Christians, are always looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises with hope. You realize that, church? There are some promises of God that have been fulfilled. And to that, we say amen. And there are some promises that have not yet been fulfilled. And to that we still say amen. We live in the tension between what we have already experienced and that which has not yet been fulfilled. And that doesn't mean that God has become slack about his promise. It doesn't mean that God has somehow become unfaithful. What it means is that we are in between that time of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, at that Christmas time, in the end of time when he sends him as a conquering king, in between these two points in history, we live in a tension of having already received his grace and already received the certainty of salvation, but still dealing with arthritis, still dealing with sin, still dealing with interpersonal relationship skills and problems. We don't look to God's word lightly, with insecurity or with doubt. Sure, we have our good and bad days with faith. We all can relate to that. But what we ultimately believe is that God is good, and God is love, and his word is trustworthy and reliable. God has a plan that he will unfold because He has already demonstrated this truth to us in Jesus. And so let's hope. Amen? Amen. In other words, for the Christian, hope isn't about the present. For the Christian, it isn't about temporary satisfaction or temporary correction. It's not even about the here and now. It's about the things that have been promised and guaranteed by God that outweigh, this is what Paul means when he says the weight of glory, they outweigh our current circumstances. So let's break this down a little bit. A couple of thoughts that we've covered that are important. First of all, our hope is tied to our faith. Our hope is tied to our faith. In this text, Paul isn't talking generally, but specifically to Christians, People who have placed their faith in Jesus. Look at the text again. It says, in this hope, what? We are saved. In this hope, we are saved. Now, this doesn't mean that we hope that we're saved. What he's saying is is our salvation as Christians is a salvation that is characterized by hope. When Christians get saved, they don't go, well, now that I know Jesus, I hope I get to heaven. Well, now that I know Jesus, I hope my sins are paid in full and I am indeed forgiven. No, we know this. We know this for certain. This is what the Apostle John says. I'm telling you these these things so that those of you who believe in Jesus, K-N-O-W, know that you have eternal life. It's not a conditional, it's not a maybe. If you are in Christ, you have life. That's it. So when we talk about this, we have to understand that our hope is tied to our faith. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Some of you are very familiar with this. Listen to the tie between hope and faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for. 
Did you get that tie? I mean, we've probably, many of you have known this verse since you were a kid. It's probably one of the first verses you've ever learned. If you've never heard this verse before, make a mark. This is a great verse. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Translation, no faith, no hope. To have a hope that is obsessive about the present is to have a faith that is troubled. But to have a hope that is obsessive about the plans God has promised to fulfill in your life and in the world is to have a faith that is orientated properly. Second, our hope is tied to certainty. Our hope is tied to faith, but secondly, our hope is tied to certainty. What Paul is saying requires our attention here. But for now, I think that you can tell what he isn't saying. He isn't saying, I hope, but I'm not sure. I hope, but no one can really tell. That certainly is not the tone of Romans chapter 8. Amen? I mean, I don't know about you, but I felt like maybe after the public reading of God's word, we could have stopped there. I mean, God's word is so clear sometimes that, that I, I, I'm afraid to muddle it up. The message is clear. There is not uncertainty here. There's not the possibility of a compromise. Christians have hope. It's a certainty. I love what he says here. Verse 25, if we hope, and all Christians hope, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with what? Patience. Oh, this is a tough one. We wait for it with patience. Now, the context in which this verse is spoken suggests to us that this isn't just patience in the sense that we're waiting, but patience in the sense that we are enduring. There's a difference. We're not talking about the kind of patience that's required when you're sitting outside your house waiting for everyone to come out because they weren't ready. This is an endurance. This is the patience that the apostles and our church forefathers had when they were burned at the stake and crucified upside down for Jesus. They endured because they had hope. They endured because they had hope. Now, we go to the store, and we go to the store, we go, hey, it says online that you had two in stock. Where's it at? You guys need to get your attitude together. This is not acceptable. That's not the kind of patience we're talking about. We're talking about a battle with sin here, church. We're talking about saying no to sin because the promise of Jesus tomorrow is better than the sin today. We're talking about denying ourselves so that we can rejoice better with Jesus. We're talking about saying no to certain pleasures or privileges that we might have so that we can engage and invest our energy and our effort in others, in our family, in sharing of the gospel with the world, service of the church, so on and so forth. Our hope is not in this immediate time. Our hope is a certainty, and it is in the future. Such a great hope it is that men and women have been giving their lives for it. That's how great it is. So this leads us to our next point. First, Christian hope faces the future. But second, Christian hope is helped by the Spirit. Christian hope is helped by the Spirit, the second thing that we need, if indeed we're going to have hope, is help along the way. Amen? And that help is provided to us by God the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 26 through 28. It says, likewise the Spirit, what's the word? Helps. Likewise the Spirit helps us. In our weakness, we do not know what to pray for as we are, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words, and he who searches hearts, that would be God, 
He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, we have a tendency to focus on Jesus, and far be it from us to focus on anybody else. Amen? We need to focus on Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The answer to the question is Jesus. How does this get so? Jesus! We always want to make a big deal about our Savior, God's Son, Jesus. But that is kind of elementary. Eventually, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, we need to eventually leave the elementary doctrines behind us, and we need to move forward. We need to get past the milk and get to the meat. And if we have been Christians for years and years and years, but we're still having to digest milk because we can't handle the meat, that means we're not maturing. And we need to work on our maturation. Here, what we're being told by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 is if we are going to experience and know our hope, which every Christian has by virtue of faith in God, then we need to be aware of the fact that God the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. And the Holy Spirit has always been active. Genesis chapter 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God, that is to say, God the Holy Spirit was present in the first and second verse of creation. There was never a time that God the Holy Spirit was not, because we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's further testified to us by the fact that when God created humankind, male and female, the Bible says that he created them according to his image and likeness. And it says, when God created, let us make man in our image. That is what we would call intertrinitarian communication. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Communication within the Trinity that always has been because though there are three persons, there is only one God. And though there is only one God, he is three persons. Explain this to me again. Nope, that's all you get. This is an incredibly challenging doctrine. And if you think you figure it out, I can assure you, you are wrong. But suffice it to say this morning that we cannot have a full-orbed gospel without a healthy doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father authored salvation. God the Son accomplished salvation on the cross. And God the Spirit applies salvation to all who believe. There is no gospel salvation without the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, was it last week? I don't know. We did baptisms recently, maybe two weeks ago. I don't. Time for me is a blur. But uh, we did baptisms recently, and when we do so, we do so according to the instructions of our Lord Jesus, who said, "Baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit." Now, having said that, let me bring a couple of things to your attention here. First. We are helped by the Spirit in our weakness. And the word for help is an interesting word. In fact, it only happens one other time in the New Testament, and it happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus uses it, and when Jesus uses it, there's a conversation happening with Mary and Martha at, at Lazarus' house in Bethany. Some of you are very familiar with this story. And Jesus is there, and, and Mary and Martha are present, and, and Martha's fussing. Because Mary's sitting with Jesus, and she's running around cleaning dishes, making sure there's enough silverware for everyone, and she comes to Jesus, and she tells Jesus, Jesus, tell my sister to help me. This is the word that Paul is saying, help is provided by the Spirit. In other words, we see that this word has a service orientation to it, the Spirit comes alongside of us, and he helps us. On another occasion, Jesus uses a different word. This is in John's Gospel. And he says, when I go, I will send a helper for you. 
This is a different word, but it is also translated helper. But it is better translated, you might want to write this down, it is better translated counselor, encourager, guide. Now, I know we're going a little deep here on this idea within the second point of our message this morning, but what I want you to see with your eyes and with your heart is this. God, the Holy Spirit, is an amazing gift to Christians, a gift that sometimes even we as Southern Baptists, I'm a Southern Baptist, so I can wholeheartedly say this without apology, sometimes we go, God the Father, God the Son, and the other guy. Because we're afraid to get labeled like those morons that do the knocking down and the rolling and the idiotic dancing and the laughing out loud because it's some kind of spiritual gift. No, that's not scriptural. That's heresy. That is not in the Bible. But what is in the Bible is this. God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. That is an experiential testimony, church. There are some days when you know that you are the child of God. It is an experiential reality. And to say that God the Holy Spirit is present, but not in such a way that we ever experience the presence and holiness and blessing of God is to say something that's unbiblical. We should get excited about praise. We should raise our hands in adoration and humility to God. I'm here to serve you. This is what it means to be free and to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, which every single believer is. But to say that the Spirit is present while we look very dead is problematic, not just for me. I think it's problematic for God. If you identify as someone in whom the Spirit lives, look alive. Look alive. You don't have to act stupid. You don't have to act ridiculous, heretical. You don't have to do that. There's a lot of space for you between looking dead and acting like that to look alive. Church, the counselor the encourager, the guide. God has given him to us as a helper. The presence and the ministry of the Spirit is an essential ingredient to Christian hope. So we should not grieve the Spirit by being involved in sin. We should not walk according to the flesh instead of according to the Spirit. We should walk according to the Spirit. We should walk according to God's Word. We should not compromise our sense of hope. How does He help us? When we talk about the ministry of the Spirit, how does He help us? Well, there's a number of ways that He can help us, but one of the ways that He can help us is by convicting us of sin. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. The Bible also says that the Spirit reminds us of the teachings of Jesus. The Spirit helps Christians through challenges and disappointments. You ever had challenges or disappointments? The Spirit is there with you. In fact, the Bible tells us that God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that is by virtue of the presence of God the Holy Spirit. Well, that's how he helps us, at least in a few ways. When does he help us? Paul says it. He helps us, in verse 26, in our weakness. In our weakness. Understand me when I say this. We rely on God at all times and for all things. Amen? But there are some times when we simply couldn't if it weren't for the Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there. There are some times in my life that I look back upon and think to myself, if it were not for the presence of God in my life. And I hope you see that. I can tell you that even if you don't, it's still because of the Spirit of God. You don't see it because you don't give time to it. You don't give consideration to it. But what Paul is saying here is that we're all weak. 
And the Spirit does in us, around us, and through us what only he can do as a gift of God who helps the people of God live a life of hope. Another important note is that he helps us. Look at verse 27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for whom? Oh, we got to get this one, church. The Spirit intercedes for whom? Yeah, that, that means believers. This is one of those things that you never hear Billy Graham talk about. You never hear, uh, 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 what's the guy in California, Calvary? Greg Laurie, you never hear Greg Laurie talk about in evangelistic situations. Because in evangelistic situations, this is not what we're talking about. In evangelistic situations, this is the message. You are a sinner and God is holy. And you will never live with God or be forgiven outside of you placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then you will be saved. Done. That's, that's, that's that part of the gospel done. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. That's it. But there's more in the letters than believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. There's theology. There's doctrine. But we don't share those things with unbelievers. That comes later. As you grow and you mature, you study, you learn, you grow, you mature. But you don't go out to, let's say, some open-air preaching opportunity and start breaking down some doctrine of sanctification. It means nothing to them. Spirit can't deal with it till they're saved. It says it right here. Spirit can't deal with it till they're saved. It's exactly right. That's what the scripture says. The mind of man does not tolerate the things of God. So the idea is, as we continue in our study this morning, you're going to see this topic telescope. And as it telescopes, I think you're going to feel one of two things, incredibly blessed or incredibly uncomfortable. God is not sorry for loving you. God is not sorry for praying for you. Listen to what he says. He knows the mind of the Spirit, and the mind of the Spirit is making intercession, not for the world, not for just anybody and everybody, not for the rocks, not for the kangaroos and the camels, not for the trees. The Spirit prays for whom? The saints. This is an echo of what we read in John 17, which is called the high priestly prayer, where Jesus is praying to the Father, in which he says, I pray not for the world. I pray for those who you have given me. When we're done, you will feel blessed or uncomfortable, one or the other. Don't dismiss this, church. The Spirit isn't some general force in the universe running around, blessing everybody, hoping somebody will light a candle or rub some marbles together or turn over a tarot card or whatever other function people think they connect with the lifeless, personless force that exists in the universe. No, this is the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, who is interceding, helping, working in the life of who? The saints. Second, we're helped by the Trinity. Now, I've already mentioned this already, but I, I think it's important that you note this because I want you to see not only verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit, get this, the Spirit intercedes for the saints. So we, as Christians, have God the Holy Spirit praying for us. But what's more, run down a little farther in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 34. Running down a little farther in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, we've got something else. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised. And he's at the right hand of God, and listen to what he's doing. He indeed is interceding for whom? Us! 
In his commentary on Romans, John Murray writes, The children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven. And the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. Well, that's beautiful, isn't it? Church, I'm wondering how many of you made a mess of this this week. I wonder how many of you made it to Sunday morning because Jesus is praying for your mess. I wonder how many of you did not sin any more than you sinned because the Spirit was interceding in your heart, having a conversation with you that you weren't even a part of. Because if you had it your way, but God said something different because God is interested in you. He has set his love on you. Look at the words again. The Spirit is intercessing for the saints. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Church, God the Father is perfectly in tune with God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is for you. Not because you're the center of it all, but because he has started something that he will finish. This leads to our final point. Christian hope is certain from beginning to end. Christian hope is certain from beginning to end. Now, our final point is found in the progressive thought that Paul gives to us in the last part of the section that we're looking at here from verse 28 to 30. So I want us to read that again, wet our palate with it, as it were, and attack some vocabulary that we see. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we don't do this often, but out of the interest of all the words that are being thrown at you this morning, I would like us to reread this again, okay? Verse 28. Paul says to the Christian church, we know. He doesn't say everybody knows. He says we know. Those of us in Christ, we know that for those who love God, not for everybody. You know, sometimes we say time works it out. Time, doesn't, time has never fixed anything. Time is a matrix in which God does work, but time itself is not a person. It has never helped you do anything. It is God who is doing work, and he is doing work in his people. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." Now, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are a couple of important words that appear here in the text, and they're up on the screen. There you go. They're up on the screen there. And what I want to do is just go briefly one by one and give you a gist of these words, because without a proper definition of these words, you don't have the certainty of which I speak. If you change the definitions of these words, you don't have the right to certainty of which I speak. And I think you're going to understand what I mean as we go through and conclude our study this morning. The first is foreknow. This is in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, if I were to just place this verse in front of you and you had absolutely zero Christian influence theologically, then I think you would probably read this and understand that although ancient and modern commentators agree or disagree on how this is understood, 
if you just read it at face value, you would probably say, this verse is not saying that God foreknew something about somebody. This verse is saying God foreknew somebody. Look at it again. Those whom he foreknew. Now, some of you are going, you're making my head hurt. What is it that you're saying? Well, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Paul is suggesting the following. Those whom he foreknew would believe, he predestined. You see what I just did? I have just inserted a belief system into a Bible verse. Those whom he foreknew would believe, he predestined. That's not what it says. It says those whom he foreknew. Those are two different theological viewpoints. Now, you could have the viewpoint that I don't agree with and still be a Christian. Absolutely. To be a Christian means to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior with nothing else. And there are some things on which we can disagree. But you can still have a perspective on what the greater abundance of evidence leads you to. And in my mind, this verse is very clear. This verse is not saying God foreknew something about somebody and then predestined them. This verse is saying God foreknew them. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It gives us kind of a picture of this. Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord is speaking, and he says to his people, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. That's basically exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 8. God set his love on these people and chose them. And the first part of Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says, and it was not because they were many in number. You were the fewest. But it was because the Lord loved you. Now, this might sound cyclical, like circular reasoning, but what is being said is this. The Lord did not set his love on you because you had something to offer him or because of some quality in yourself. He set his love on you because he chose to set his love on you. Now, you can look at this and go, this is very offensive. But it's not meant to be offensive because in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, no one has hope. There are none righteous. No, not one. Not one. If God were to say, you know what? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different. I've decided that I'm not going to unfold the plan of salvation. Let me see who's righteous, and I'll only save them. Guess how many would be saved? Zero. Not one. You want God to be fair? No, you don't want God to be fair. If you want God to be fair, you will go to hell for eternity for the debt of sin you have incurred against a three-time holy creator. There are not options here. We are all going to hell unless we are saved in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is this. If you are saved in Christ Jesus, it's because before you were born, God already knew you. Not something about you. You. Which is exactly what he says to Jeremiah. He says to Jeremiah, you will go and preach against the nations. And he says, I'm just a little boy. I'm a young man. I can't be a prophet. And God's response is, before you were in the womb, I knew you. It is the basis on which he predestines. That's the next point. Those whom he foreknew, not something about them, but those whom he personally chose to be acquainted with in this way, he predestined. Now, what does the word predestined mean? Well, it means, one lexicon says, to decide beforehand. He decided beforehand. Another lexicon says it means to set a boundary. So there is a sovereign decision on God's part 
to save those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Look at verse 30. The chain continues. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That is, to salvation in the gospel. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Church, do you realize that Paul is saying without a single break in this chain of salvation that everything is as good as done? Those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. If you are in Christ today and you limped in here with your unholy leg and you said, I don't even know how he loves me. I don't even know how he loves me. I'll tell you, he chose to love you. And when he chose to love you, he chose to love you from start to finish. It's as good as done. Sometimes I come in here dragging my unholy leg too. And I come in here and I think, why does God love me? Church, listen to me. Say amen if you're listening. It did not start with you. It will not finish with you. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who has begun a good work on you will finish it on the day of Christ. That's a promise. That's a promise. And that idea flies in the face of people who argue that what this verse is saying is that God predestined those whom he knew would believe. Well, what happens if one day you decide not to believe? Well, you think he, he, he looks forward into the future and says, well, if they believe, then I'll just make them, I'll make them not be able to not believe anymore. Oh, this is, this is getting a little mind-twisting. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We love because he loved us first. Now, did you call on God? You absolutely called on God. Did you believe in the gospel? You absolutely believed in the gospel. Do you love God? Yes, you love God. But he did first. But he did first. James Denny writes the following. He says, the tense in the last word, glorified, is amazing. It is the most daring anticipation of faith that men in the New Testament contain. He's saying... They're saying that our salvation is as good as done, even though we're not in glory yet. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It is as good as done. When you come to worship, or you leave work, or you're sitting at home, and you're thinking to yourself, why me, oh God? The answer to that from God is, it's me, not you. It's not about you. It's about me and the work I chose to do in your life. Even though you weren't in heaven yet, it is as good as done in Paul's eyes. God will finish what he has started, and as limpy as you might be, you will be glorified. A couple of things that I think we learned from this. First, since this is the case, we should learn about our hope. We should learn about our hope. We should spend time reading thinking, meditating, and praying on the Christian truths because those are the truths that will grant us the clarity and excitement and patience that we need to be successful in the life that we're living. Amen? We're never going to be given hope by the government. I mean, this, we, he, well, let me just stop. <laughs> 
You'll be given a lot of things by the government, but it won't be hope. If you want hope, you got to come to Jesus Christ. You're not going to be given hope by the world. The world will make you promises, but it will never fulfill them. This is how the world works. We will never be given hope by sin. Sin sells us hope, but it never delivers. Church, we cannot find the hope that we need in the government, in the world, or in sin. These things will come to an end, but the love of God for you will never end. And our hope by faith is found there. We should spend time learning about it, talking about it, and worshiping the Lord for it. Second, since this is the case, we should share our hope. Since this is the case, we should share our hope. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. To the book of 1 Peter. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. I'll give you a moment to get there because I want you to see this with your eyes. I want to read to you 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, well, verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15, 1 Peter chapter 3. When you're there, say amen. Read this with your eyes, please, as I read aloud. Peter speaking to Christians here, right? Speaking to the church. And Peter says to them, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them and don't be troubled. Verse 15, this is what I want you to hear. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, I'm going to reread this, and I'm going to take the word holy out, and I'm just going to put another word because this is, this is what he's trying to convey, okay? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as the most special and unique person that you have ever, ever, ever known. Give him a special place in your heart. Here it is. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the what? For the what? For the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Church, before I close this morning, I want to share with you some important thoughts on this matter. I think what Peter is saying is, until you set Christ apart in your heart in a special way, a way that he deserves, you can never really make a defense for your faith that should be that important to you. Somebody might come to you and say, well, why do you go to church? Why, why do you believe? What, what makes Jesus different? And right now, in all likelihood, the majority of you would probably go, um, but that's because you're not thinking about the hope, reading about the hope, meditating on the hope. You don't have to be a theologian to talk to somebody about your relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a theologian to know what the Bible says. Anyone and everyone can read this book. It says the same thing. It doesn't matter who reads it. But what Peter is saying is that you and I as Christians, when we set Jesus apart in our hearts as unique and special and worthy to be praised, as we set him apart as holy, we need to be ready to make a defense for our hope. That's the word apology in the Greek. When you talk about apologetics... It means to make a defense for what you believe in. Somebody said, well, what makes Jesus different than Islam? Well, that's a good question. I don't know a lot about Islam, but I can tell you about Jesus. This is where we should be. Making a defense for the hope that we have. This is a hope that anyone can have who places their faith in Jesus Christ. 
And you say, well, wait a minute. You just talked about foreknowledge and predestination. No, that's not your job. That's God's job. Your job is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the truth. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. That is a fact. This other stuff, foreknowledge, predestination, that's God's work. That's not your work. You have no control over it at all whatsoever. Your job is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. That's the truth. That's the gospel. Now, the rest of it, we study, we learn, we grow. It encourages our spirit, but we don't mix these things. God's business is his, and what he's commanded us to do, we ought to fulfill and obey. But what Peter is saying is simple. Listen, if you're a Christian, you got to be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have. My question for you this morning, church, is this. If you're not making a defense for the hope that you have, do you truly have that hope? Do you truly have an awareness of the hope that God has given you? And if not, there is only one reason why, and that is because you are not thinking, reading, meditating, and praying on the Scriptures and the things that the Scriptures teach. To close, let me say this. We hope for a lot of things. We hope it doesn't rain. We hope to get to work on time. We hope this charge clears. But Christian hope is a confident expectation in the future. And it's not something that is possessed by one Christian. It is possessed by all Christians. Because Jesus came for this. And anyone who believes in him will be saved. And anyone who is saved will have hope for eternity.